Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. I'm looking for support in 2018 to keep the show going and have started a GoFundMe. If the show has been of any help to you on your writing journey, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating so that I can continue airing. Visit GoFundMe.com and search for Writer Writer Pants on Fire to contribute. Today's guest is Michelle Houts, a fellow Ohioan who also writes across multiple genres. Michelle's titles range from picture books to middle grade novels, as well as several nonfiction books for middle grade readers. Michelle joined me today to talk about the importance of letter writing and journaling from a personal perspective, as well as the historical, as these are a primary source for biographers. Also, the importance of a writer having a physical space specifically for creative work. Born to privilege, trained for command, destined for danger. Master and Commander meets Sarah J. Moss in a seafaring adventure of duty, love, magic, and a princess's quest to protect her kingdom on her own terms. Air and Ash, an addicting new YA fantasy adventure by Alex Lydell. On your blog, you talk about something called the 52-letter challenge. Tell us about that, what it is, where the idea came from, and how the concept has spread around the world. The 52-letter challenge, it came from a couple different places in my past. One is just a place of letter writing, always having a pen pal, always looking for a pen pal. I uh, was an elementary schooler in the 70s, and so everyone in the 70s had a pen pal, usually assigned through school, often from another state, but sometimes from another country. Teachers were encouraging those letter writing skills, and so kids were assigned pen pals. I loved writing letters as a kid, and then I also loved journaling. I stopped doing both, really. I stopped letter writing. When my grandmother went to a nursing home, I had three young kids at home, and I don't know what prompted it, other than the fact that I knew I wanted to write to her frequently. I started writing to her every Thursday. It became my journal. What was kind of cool was I was telling her the everyday things that were happening at home. One of the kids lost a tooth. We live on a farm, so we got another 80-acre field planted or the weather. All those little mundane details of life I was putting in these letters to my grandma. I was typing them and then printing them in large font so she could read them easily. It occurred to me I could print two copies of these, put them in a notebook, and I've kept a journal again. It was all those little personal details and thoughts that I'd stopped journaling about. Suddenly I was doing it again in these letters to my grandma. So that went on for a couple of years. After she passed, I had those letters, not only as a remembrance of my conversations with my grandma, but also as the journal of those years when my kids were little. So the 52 letter challenge came from the idea that somebody could write a letter a week for a year. They could write to the same person every week if they chose, or they could write to a different person every week. And I really thought that this was a great middle grade challenge because that was my writing audience. They're already proficient readers. They're already proficient writers, but they often don't have a reason to write outside of school assignments. So I thought, I'm going to make this 
a thing on my website, a special section. I'm not only going to challenge them to do it, but I'm going to tell them if they write their first letter to me, I will absolutely write that because that's the joy of writing letters is receiving something in your mailbox in return. Then I was going to provide some support because once you write to your grandma, your favorite cousin, and your best friend, then you're stuck. Now, who do I write to? So I made a giant list on my website. Write to someone that you saw today that you think needs a smile. Write to a local firefighter or police officer and thank them for what they're doing. Write to someone that has been sick and you haven't seen for a while. Write to someone that you haven't seen for 10 years. So there's no rules. It's a pretty open-ended challenge. And my biggest surprise has been the age diversity and the geographic diversity. I've gotten letters from people up to 90 and as young as first grade. I've gotten letters from Tanzania, Cape Town, South Africa, and Poland, and the UK, and all over the United States. And Hawaii came last week, my first letter from Hawaii. So I just challenge them, start with me, I'll write you back, but I'm not going to be your pen pal for 52 weeks. And then send your last one to me and tell me you're done. And so it's been going on long enough that I'm getting a lot of, I'm done, I did it. Anything to encourage the smiles and the excitement that come when you open your mailbox and there's this handwritten letter in there. There's an element to it that we have lost now in the digital age. I remember very clearly when I was young, between the ages of 11 and 17, I wrote to my cousin who lived in Indiana. Probably every week, we would write back and forth. And when I got her letter, I responded to her letter. Years we wrote to each other. Even though she lived in another state, we were really close. She was one of the first people that I knew who was a writer, who was young like I was. And we were able to keep creativity flowing between us, not necessarily writing fiction to each other, but writing letters to each other. And now we're both almost 40. She has the letters that I wrote to her and I have a box of letters that she wrote to me. And we each have our big boxes full of all of our letters up in the attic that we wrote back and forth. I don't journal. I don't have a diary. I've never kept one. So it's the closest thing I have to that. You're exactly right when you talk about it being part of the recording of history and your personal narrative. And I've done several biographies, two middle grade and one picture book biography. And much of the last middle grade biography that I researched, much of the information I got came from 700 pages of letters written by subject of my biography, who's now passed 700 pages of first person words of his that I'll, I would never get the chance if he had sent those as emails. But I worry about how history is being recorded today because emails, yeah, sure, they can be tracked and found. They're not a physical remnant of someone's life like letters are. I wonder how research on people today will be carried out when people aren't writing down their thoughts and sending them back and forth to people like they used to on paper. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I think it's a very valid question because I do a lot of genealogy. I wish I had letters from my ancestors. My ancestors were all farmers. I don't think they had that kind of time. The immediacy of it, seeing your five times great grandfather's signature on a will 
I know. I think from a cultural perspective is that we are leaving huge footprints behind online through our Twitter, through our Instagram, through our Facebook, but that's already been curated by us. We only present our most positive side, our most flattering pictures, and we make ourselves look as good as we can possibly look in those social media posts. I get that, but that's not you. That's not who you really are. As you're saying, in the future, people that want to know more about you, it's not necessarily just the ugly things, but things that you honestly felt because some of us don't discuss our political or our religious feelings online because we don't want to be attacked or have to get into a debate. And so those thoughts and those feelings, those aren't going to make it into the narrative because we do choose what we share. Letters are very personal. They are an interaction between two people, whereas those blog posts, those tweets and those Facebook posts, they are public. Letters are a very personal conversation between two people. Oh, absolutely. I have letters between my cousin and I, and I'll talk about a boy that I like. And yeah, I would never post that on Facebook. I think letters are much more insightful and more personal. And I think this project is wonderful. I love that it's worldwide for you. That's really, really cool. That was a really big surprise to me. That multi-generational aspect of it was a really happy surprise. Okay. So another topic that just fascinates me, and obviously I think you and I could talk for a long time about history. We will talk about your books soon, I promise to my listeners. But before we talk about your books, I'd love to talk about your workspace. Your office is a one-room schoolhouse built in 1894, which you renovated over four years. So tell us more about the importance of having a space like that and how it helps keep you consistent in your writing. We acquired this little gem of a building a few years ago. We farm. We farm full-time. When you buy acreage, it often comes with miscellaneous buildings, a crumbling farmhouse, a nice, sturdy, ancient barn, a a chicken coop. So they bought this 80-acre farm, and on the corner was a one-room schoolhouse that had been not used as a schoolhouse since 1939, had been used by the farmer before as a shed. It had a little lean-to built on it. The bell tower was gone. The first thing that we did was just check to see if it was structurally sound. These brick buildings were built with amazing strength. The layers of the brick walls and the foundation blocks and then the wood structure to make the roof was loaded with 30-foot beams of hand-sawn oak. Once we found out it was sturdy, then we started thinking, well, you know, what if... And so it took us four years, but we renovated it into a space that very much looks like a schoolhouse on the outside. We put the bell tower and the bell back up. On the inside, we maintained a lot of the character of the schoolroom. It's got the original wainscoting and woodwork. It's got a chalkboard and Presidents Lincoln and Washington and the 48-star flag. Rest of the inside, we have just created as my workspace. So it's nice that it's a mile from home and that it's really close. Good weather. I can walk or ride my bike down here, but it's also separate and it's dedicated. So this is my creative space. Any writer that has ever worked from home, the phone rings, the washer dings, got to lay out something for supper, 
There's constant distractions in the home environment. I've been writing down here full-time now for a little while, and I love the separation between work and home. I love that I'm really productive when I'm here, but I also love that when I get home, I bring my laptop home with me, but most of the time I don't feel that I've got to get back to something after dinner. If my daughter's home from college, Uh we can watch a movie together and I don't feel that pressure that I didn't get enough done today. Having that space has just been great. I love that you say not only does it create a area where you are specifically a writer and you're working, but it also allows you to leave your work at the door when you come home. Yeah, it was like an unexpected benefit. I knew that I'd be productive when I was down here, but I didn't realize how much better it would make my quality time at home. My nest was quickly emptying those hours with the kids that are leaving for college and getting married and moving out. uh, Those are precious and I need to give them top priority when I'm with them and when I'm with my husband. I think that's a wonderful point and I love it. Well, I'm fascinated by it because I very recently, just this week, started doing research into my home. When I was a little kid, I would go past this house that I'm sitting in right now on the bus and they have a pond and it's a beautiful old two-story farmhouse with 10-foot windows. And I would go by, I mean, I was a little kid and every morning I would look at that house and be like, I love that house. That house is so beautiful. I want to live there one day. I would tell my mom this and she was like, honey, that house is a family house that has been passed down through generations. They're never going to sell that house. When I was 22, I bought it. Oh my gosh, that is great. (laughs) The family that lived here, they actually, they moved down the road, but it is a big old house, big staircase, and they were older and they were no longer able to handle the space, various outbuildings and a pond, and they just couldn't handle, they couldn't keep up with the space anymore. You are going to be familiar with the mentality because you are also from small town Ohio, but we know them. Like, you know, they're friends of the family. My grandfather dug the pond that's out here. Right. And they knew that I had always loved this house. They wanted it to go to someone with an emotional connection to it. And so they approached my parents and said, you know, we know Mindy loves our house. Does she want to buy it? And I was like, yes. Awesome. Like, I didn't even ask them how much. I was like, yes, I will buy it. (laughs) I began doing research into the house. I found a map, a township map from 1871 that has my house on it. Oh, don't you love that? I really do. Well, the schoolhouse was built in 1894, and we know that because the original slate roof was on it when we got it, and it says in green slate, 1894, across the whole side of the roof. It's so cool that that was there. So when we redid the slate, we redid that green slate so that that would really pop out and you could see it. But I told my husband, if this project takes 10 years, so be it. I have 10 years, hopefully, God willing to put into this. But what I don't have 10 years to do is to get the stories of the people that went to school here. Because like you said, I live in a small town, people know people. So everybody that saw that something was happening down here at the schoolhouse stopped and said, my aunt went there. Here's her phone number. She's in this nursing home. My grandmother went there. She would love to talk to you. My uncle. So I got to interview at least a dozen former students about their memories of being in this room, in this building, the teachers. People started to drop off original photographs of classes. 
I had 97-year-old ladies that could rattle off everyone in their class, their maiden name, their married name, who their teacher was, what they ate, how they handled lunch, how discipline was handled. And I audio recorded and scribbled notes. And I have this giant notebook that I just felt this pressure to get these stories before these people are gone. Just treasure their stories and their memories because the building, thankfully, will be here another hundred years, but their stories will go when they go. So getting those stories down was really important to me. Whether I'll ever do anything with them as a writer, I don't know, but the history was important to me. I want to elucidate for listeners that aren't familiar with the practice of putting the year on the roof. That is a thing you will see often here in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. If you're driving through a rural area, homes and barns, usually barns and uh, school buildings, they will have, they'll use a different color of slate when they do the original roof and they will put the year that the barn or the school or sometimes the house was built right across the roof. And sometimes it'll even have the name of the family. Mm -hmm. It'll say Smith, like right there on the barn or Grant. If they can fit the name on the roof in slate, they'll do it. That's something that is fading that we don't see as much anymore as those older buildings are falling down and roofs are obviously no longer functional or they're being replaced. It's just a slice of history that's really amazing and I think kind of distinctive to the Midwest. I think so too. Are you ready to take your middle grade or young adult novel to the next level? At the Highlights Whole Novel Workshop, Sarah Aronson, Nancy Werlin, and the rest of the faculty will challenge you to look at your novel critically and to find openings and opportunities for revision. This comprehensive workshop includes one-on-one sessions, lectures, group discussions, and all kinds of exercises to support, facilitate, and amplify your creative process. Interested? Ready to dive into revision in a whole new way? Contact the Highlights Foundation. Scholarships are available. Applications are being accepted now. Visit highlightsfoundation.org. Or for more information, visit Sarah Aronson's website at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, Aronson, A-R-O-N-S-O-N, dot com. On to books. You write... For the middle grade audience across a wide range, including contemporary fantasy and nonfiction, do you ever struggle switching your focus between projects when the voice needs to change that drastically? I think that I write across a wide range because I think across a wide range, I get excited about a project. I never saw myself as a fiction writer or a nonfiction writer. I just saw myself as getting really enthused about a project. And if that project happened to lend itself toward fiction, that's where it took me. And if it was nonfiction biography, I do a lot of biography. Research excites me and that's what's got my attention. Then that's what I go with. I like having a lot of different projects going at the same time. I like having things in different stages. I always have something that's copy edit, almost ready to go. And something that is in the idea stage and then things that are right in the middle are going back and forth in heavy editing. It's nice not to get bogged down in one of those stages and just feel like your whole life is about this book that you can't get off the ground or your whole life is about this book that you've been going round and round and round back and forth with editing. 
or your whole life is about this book that's about to come out. So it's nice to have projects in different stages. And I just like having different kinds of projects. Definitely. I'm the same way. I write across so many different genres because like you, I read widely and my mind works in all the different places, sometimes simultaneously. Usually with our publication schedules, we're never working on just one project at a time. We might be tying one up and beginning another or brainstorming, even just those first steps of brainstorming another way back in the back of your mind. It's always interesting to me because people ask me that question a lot. Is it hard to juggle those things? And the answer for me is similar. It's like, well, no, they're distinct on their own. If I let them grow as themselves, instead of thinking of them in concert with these other projects, it's just like raising children. They will be themselves. Exactly. Yeah, I find that to be, for me, an easier route for writing. I know some people say they can't switch between projects like that, but I'm really good at compartmentalizing. A day like today, I had several things going on in the morning. You and I are talking this afternoon. I'm going to have a chunk of time of a couple of hours when we're done. I'm going to want to do something with that time. That little chunk of couple hours is not a time for me to delve back into my middle grade work in progress. It's a complicated thing. It's got three different timelines and it's got several points of view. And when I'm into that world, I have to get there and stay there for a whole day. So I like having projects that I can visit and spend a few hours. I think that my picture book projects help me a lot in that regard. Speaking of that picture book, you released that in 2016. I just did my first picture book interview with Pat Zillow Miller. And one of the things I talked with her about that I find frustrating as a fellow author, even though I don't write picture books, is that when I am speaking with aspiring authors or non-writers, they say that they'd like to write a children's book because they believe it's a simple task because of the small word count. When I interviewed Pat, she said she has people say to her, I've always wanted to write a picture book. One day when I have a free afternoon, I'm going to sit down and do that. So it's the small word count that is misleading. It's very misleading. I find smaller projects more challenging. And I was wondering what your experience was since you have done picture books versus chapter books. When you pick up a middle grade biography, like um, my biography of Dottie Kamenchuk, you see hundreds of pages and you see photographs and you see the research that went into that. When you pick up When Grandma Gatewood Took a Hike, which is another biography, but in picture book format, what you don't see are the trips to Gallia County, the trips to museums. The research is still there. It's presented in a thinner book and you think, oh, it must have been much easier to write. In reality, you're telling the same story and you get fewer words to tell it in. To me, it's really challenging to boil that down. I just sold a nonfiction picture book about an owl whose egg was rescued on a coal conveyor belt. I went to Missouri to the World Bird Sanctuary to research that story last summer, and people would ask, well, when does that book come out? And what I think a lot of people don't understand is, no, it's got to be written and then sold, and then it comes out. So I'm doing research Uh trips on the chance that somebody might want to buy this manuscript. I think that it looks easy to sit and pen a quick little thousand-word or less picture book but the research is still behind it. Editing in picture books is brutal. 
We have to kill our darlings and give up our favorite phrases and do all that when we write novels. But, oh, it's brutal in picture book editing because you get so few words to say what has to be said in the most informative, entertaining, lyrical, magical, wonderful way and do that in 500 words. I'm always in awe of picture book writers, and I think people misunderstand the art that goes into that type of work. You also have the fact that in a picture book, the illustrator gets to tell half the story. It's nice. A writer gets to use that to their advantage because they've got the visual images that get to tell part of the story. But the author also has to step back and leave room for the illustrator to tell part of their story. That's the marriage of picture book writing that novelists don't usually have to think about. It came from the need, like my other middle grade biographies, to tell a woman's story. And the story of Emma Gate, the story of the first woman to solo hike the Appalachian Trail. So my research led me initially thinking I was going to do a middle grade biography about her that fit into the series that my other middle grade biographies are in. After a short amount of research, I realized that the story that I wanted to tell was this small part of a very interesting and complicated life that probably wasn't even middle grade material. That's when I decided to tell only about her Appalachian Trail experiences. A biographer named Ben Montgomery has written Emma's biography for the adult reader that tells the rest of her amazing Mm -hmm. story. It was the subject that led me into creating this picture book, not necessarily, I want to write a picture book, what should I write it about? And is it true then that typically the publisher will pair you with your illustrator? Yes, and pair is even, you know, sometimes an interesting word because the illustrator and the art director work very closely together and the author and the editor work very closely together. But depending on the house, the author and the illustrator may never actually connect. That's to safeguard both the author and the illustrator's ability to have their own vision and do their own work. I need to give the illustrator all the room that they need to tell their part of the story, even if it wasn't what I visualized. They would be like having a child (laughs) with someone you've never met. It is kind of like that. That's a good analogy. I do think that picture books present their own type of conundrums and working processes and working relationships that don't exist in other elements of publishing. But I enjoy listening to other writers talk about how they go about the process of writing a picture book. And I feel the same way about poetry. I am not a poet. I never will be. I enjoy reading other people's poetry and listening to them about their craft and how they go about it. It's an element of literature that I can enjoy without ever having to say, how did they do this or compare right. it to my own work? Because I have no intentions of ever doing that. Right. I can just enjoy exactly. it. <laughs> so you mentioned your nonfiction. Camion First is about a female athlete who played for the Rockford Peaches and on whom Gina Davis's character in A League of Their Own is loosely based. So what brought you to Cammy's story? And has that book found a readership among young female athletes? Because I have kind of a passion for this. I think that reading group, young female athletes, is sorely underrepresented. I completely agree with that. And it was really interesting. I had proposed a different book to the Ohio University Press, who did not 
traditionally published children's books, but it was about an Ohioan from Southern Ohio. And so I thought, well, maybe this university press would be interested. The publisher went to my website and said, well, I see you write middle grade. We've been thinking about starting a series, a biography series. Um, Would you be interested in brainstorming some subjects with us and maybe writing the first in the series? At that point, we were thinking of Ohioans. So Ohio has its share of presidents and aviators. That's what we're famous for. We've produced a lot of presidents and we've produced a lot of astronauts. Uh They all have great biographies written about them. And so we wanted to go beyond those folks and say, what Ohioans are not household names, but have amazing stories. I came across Dottie Kamenchuk's story and immediately it grabbed me as a great middle grade biography because it's got girl appeal. It's a girl power book. It's a woman doing something men were doing in the 1940s and women weren't doing. It's a sports book. It had everything that we wanted to launch this series of biographies for young readers. Cami was an only child growing up in Cincinnati, uh, playing softball for an industrial softball league when World War II came and Major League Baseball was in danger of going under because all the players were enlisting. Philip Wrigley had this idea that let's have the women play baseball. So he scouted all of the North Midwest softball leagues for the best players and said, girls were going to play baseball, of course, in the movie, A League of Their Own. That whole scenario was immortalized forever. Everybody knows that movie. And all the characters in the movie, the director, Penny Marshall, will will say are composite characters. So nobody is supposed to be exactly one person. But everyone that knew our Dottie from Cincinnati and saw the movie agreed that Dottie Kamenchuk had the same leadership skills, the same incredible ball-playing skills, the same maturity, and she was a 12-year player for the Rockford Peaches, and so she was very much a role model for that character. I love that you did this, that you found this female athlete that can be an inspiration because, as I mentioned before, I really struggle with the lack of literature for young people about female athletes. They're there. The people are there. The books don't exist. It's changing a little bit in the nonfiction arena, but fiction, you just don't see well, it. It was really interesting. Camion first came out, and the Ohio University Press decided that they wanted to continue this Biographies for Young Readers series. They asked me to stay on and help edit other books in the series. So since then, we've had the story of Jerry Mock, the first woman to fly solo around the world, come out. That's by Nancy Rope Him. That's an amazing story. Of course, everyone knows Amelia Earhart. She was the one that did not succeed doing what Jerry Mock did. Nobody knows her name. But I'm really excited about an upcoming book in the series about Christine Brennan. This one I'm editing, and it is written by Julie Rubini. And it's the story of female sports reporter Christine Brennan. She was the first woman to fight the rule about not being allowed to be in the NFL locker rooms to interview players after the games. And she broke that barrier and then has continued to report on, she's heading to the Olympics right now. She has been in some of the most amazing places in history, including being present for part of the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan incidents and being present when Greg Luganis 
hit his head on the diving board. She is an amazing living Ohio-born female sports person that just deserves this biography that Ohio University Press is doing about her. And so excited about what that will show young girls, what was once a man's world. And that's Dottie's book, even Grandma Gatewood's picture book. What was once considered a man's thing women can do. I am behind that wholeheartedly. Lastly, I want to ask you, what's up next for you? What do you have coming out? What are you working on? Stumbled into a chapter book series. So we've been talking about middle grade and we've been talking about picture books, but I also hit the sweet spot right in between with a STEM girls science chapter book series that has been a blast to write. It's called Lucy's Lab. Books one and two came out in the fall of 17. Book three comes out in February this month. It's been so much fun to connect with kids. I started this as a middle grade fiction series, and I realized very quickly that eight and nine and 10-year-old girls have already decided if they're science-minded or not long before eight, nine, and 10. I was listening to first and second graders, girls, and they had already decided that science was for boys, math is hard, bugs are gross, If it's not pink and purple and sparkly, it's not for Uh them. And I love pink, purple, and sparkly, but I also want them to be confident in math and science. And so immediately, before I even got the first draft done, I bumped it down to a chapter book series, and it sold pretty quickly. And so that's a really fun Lucy's Lab chapter book series that is ongoing. I have another biography of mid-century modern artist Charlie Harper that releases April 1st. So we're in the final editing stages of that book. And I'm so excited about that. That will be a very visual book with lots of Charlie Harper's art in it. It'll be very colorful middle grade biography. Very excited about that. On Twitter and Instagram, at mhouts, writes, houts is H-O-U-T-S, at M. Houts Writes. They can find me on Facebook as Michelle Houts and www.michellehouts.com is my website and blog. Valentine Kisses, a collection of sweet and smoldering stories from six ink spell publishing authors, a lonely hairstylist, a woman haunted by her past, and a shy librarian. Will they find love in time for Valentine's Day? Valentine Kisses, the perfect gift for the romance lover in your life. On sale now at Amazon and other ebook retailers for only 99 cents. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>